I'm, uh, I'm very pleased to be here for a number of reasons. First, I enjoy sharing my work and offering it up for your comments and uh, critique. Uh, secondly, I've learned much about Sidney Ball and uh, finding out what this was about and the history of this uh, lecture, which is really quite imposing, I must say. Um, so we'll see if we're on a downhill slide uh, with this year's event. Um, and um, uh, and not to, uh, among other things, my wife's discovery that the bedpan in which the first cultures of penicillin were grown is on this very campus. Uh, these, these are important things, uh, uh, important reasons to be here. Um, I want to talk about uh, evidence-based practice and some related themes. Um, I think this is a familiar concept here. It's certainly a, virtually a movement in the world of uh, social programs, public health, and so on uh, in the U.S. I want to start with a concept, which is actually in some ways where my uh, work here began. The, the conventional definition of evidence-based interventions, at least for uh, uh, social programs, uh, which is my general orientation here, and I'll use juvenile justice uh, programs, intervention programs for juvenile offenders as my case example. The conventional definition is that you have a manualized brand name program. I'm going to call those protocol programs. And the reason you know you're looking at the same program is because it's following the same manual, the same protocol when it's implemented in different uh, instances. The examples of this for juvenile offenders, I think, are are familiar. Uh, functional family therapy is such a program. Multi-systemic therapy, which actually has gained a good bit of uh, traction in uh, some European context. Multi-dimensional treatment, foster care, aggression replacement therapy training. Most of these are known by their uh, familiar um, initials. Whether you're familiar with these programs or not, you get the idea. These are very specific programs, specific protocols. Uh, um, they're implemented uh, following the protocol, and uh, if there's sufficient evidence, we call that an evidence-based program. Um, these programs are recognized in practice because they appear on a list somewhere. Uh, there's some body, and there are numerous bodies, who review the evidence and provide some certification that these pass some standards, and they go on a list. In the U.S., the um, Blueprints for Violence Prevention is the, uh, uh, the list with the highest standards and uh, the most recognition. We have other things. We have a national registry. We have the Office of Federal Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention's model program guides. There's something new um, from the federal agency called Crime Solutions that doing, is doing similar things. These lists show very little agreement about what they uh, constitutes uh, evidence-based programs because their standards and coverage are so different. But practitioners go to these lists, find something that's been certified uh, in some form, and uh, implement it, and that constitutes evidence-based practice. The evidence base for these kinds of protocol programs, of course, are evaluation studies of implementations of that specific uh, protocol in different places. If you look at the research base uh, carefully, for most of these programs, there are relatively few studies. In some cases, uh, uh, two, three, a few like multi-systemic therapy have half a dozen or more with a given population. But uh, from that perspective, it's a rather thin uh, evidence uh, base, and that's the nature of the field right now. The assumptions, if you're going to practice one of these programs and expect to get the effects that are promised by the research, is that you implement it with fidelity. And there's a big assumption of generalizability beyond the original studies. If there are only two or three or four studies that are done in specific places under specific circumstances, and you're going to practice it more widely than that, you have to assume that uh, it's going to work in your situation pretty much the way it did in those two or three or four places where it was actually studied. There's a specificity assumption, I think, in this model for evidence-based practice that I want to call your attention to. Um, because of the focus on these named manualized programs, there's an assumption that if program A works, and uh, similar program B does not work. Program uh, A must have some effective uh, active ingredient, 
Program B may be similar in other ways, but it lacks those effective ingredients. This is an assumption that's rarely tested, but it's implicit in the idea that if you do functional family therapy, that's evidence-based and you should have positive effects. If you do some generic homegrown family therapy, well, that may not be evidence-based, and it, though it may be quite similar to the model program, you can't be assured that it would work. Um, I will question this specificity assumption uh, shortly. Um, the extension of that to social programs, I think, is uh, questionable. There's certainly, I think there's, a, I think there's a pharmaceutical image in here. Um, the area in which I think this specificity assumption is more clearly true is where we have drugs that treat a particular uh, condition in many instances. Very similar pharmaceutical mixes with somewhat different molecules uh, don't, aren't effective and kind of sorting out which have these special active ingredients and which don't uh, can be very important. The, the alternate perspective, um, which uh, is implicit in the work I've done, though I didn't think of it this way until uh, sometime later, is to define a program or an intervention at a somewhat different level, to define it as a generic intervention type uh, rather than a specific uh, brand name. So for juvenile offenders, in my case example, we can talk about interpersonal skills training as a broader category, a type of uh, intervention. We can talk about family therapy. Functional family therapy is an example of family therapy, but there are other examples as well. Multisystemic therapy, which is on my previous list, also falls in this category. Or group counseling or cognitive behavioral therapy and so on. These are recognizable categories for uh, practitioners. It's not difficult to come up with criteria and definitions that allow you to distinguish a cognitive behavioral therapy from group counseling, from family therapy, and so on down the line. But we're defining what is an intervention program at a different level than a protocol or manualized uh, program. Within one of these types, you have similar um, interactions between providers and juveniles, and we've got our homegrown programs, our one-off programs, and our well-known brand name programs all mixed in there. When you look at programs that way, it allows a broader consideration of what differentiates very similar effective and ineffective programs because we have evaluation studies of different programs within that type that we can uh, look at. And when we look at it this way, we can actually empirically examine the specificity hypothesis, uh, which says that uh, these protocol programs that have research distinctive uh, to them are uh, expected to be better than similar programs that, uh, uh, that don't have that same base. So let me turn now to my uh, case example and spend some time on this. This is programs for uh, juvenile offenders. Um, uh, and I'm going to draw my evidence here from a meta-analysis of studies of interventions with juvenile offenders. We've been working on this, my crew and I, for literally over uh, 20 years, and it's a database that's grown very large. And um, uh, in recent years, I think I'm actually beginning to understand it. It's taken a while to sort out the technical details and uh, the mass of uh, data and so on. We have 548 independent study samples in this um, uh, meta-analysis. Um, actually, we have more than that because we have updated for some recent uh, literature, but I don't have those uh, integrated uh, yet. Uh, all, of these, uh, all of the studies uh, deal with participant samples that are juveniles aged uh, 12 to uh, 21. They all involve interventions intended to have positive effects on subsequent uh, delinquency. But we've not restricted our coverage, obviously, with 548 studies to any particular intervention, certainly not to any brand name uh, intervention, nor to any one category of uh, generic types. This is what I call comparative meta-analysis. We're really looking at the whole range of programs that target a particular kind of outcome, a particular kind of a clientele, and it gives us the possibility of, uh, in a consistent uh, analytic framework, of examining which things seem to work better and which things uh, work more poorly. Um, there's at least one delinquency outcome in all of these studies. 
uh, and they're required methodologically to use random assignment or if not random assignment to have pretreatment differences on critical variables matched or statistically controlled and in addition to that we do a lot of exploration about methodological differences in their role in the outcomes which I'd be happy to talk about in more detail later if you like. The outcomes of primary interest and the ones I'm going to focus on in this literature, of course, is reoffense rates or recidivism, interventions with offenders who have been apprehended or come to the attention of the law enforcement authorities or the juvenile courts, receive some kind of program, and the uh, main objective of these programs is to have them not come back into the uh, clutches of uh, law enforcement and juvenile justice. Um, I want to point out, though, though I'm not going to talk about it, that um, uh, with this large body of uh, studies, um, many of them measure outcomes in different areas. And we're able to look at the correlations across studies. If an intervention reduces reoffense rates, do we see a corresponding or a correlated reduction in any of the other thing outcomes that are measured? And in fact, you do see those uh, positive correlations across the board. So uh, at the same time that these interventions are reducing reoffense rates, they're also showing positive effects when measured on person. Uh, personal adjustment category, which includes mental health symptoms, uh, psychological well-being, internalizing, externalizing measures uh, of that sort. Um, uh, some studies have measures of interpersonal adjustment, family and peer relations, and we see correlated effects there. School participation and performance, participation, attendance, truancy, performance, academic performance, uh, grades, uh, and so on, and employment and uh, vocational accomplishments. Um, so when these programs are effective, they actually seem to affect a fairly broad front of, uh, of behavior, even though the target is, uh, is uh, reoffense rates. Okay, um, many of you know uh, uh, quite a bit about meta-analysis and research uh, synthesis. Um, I'll give you a simple uh, picture here um, uh, and spare you the uh, technical details in case you're not entirely familiar with it. We take all of the research reports on these 548 uh, samples and uh, interventions and we have a coding scheme and extract a great deal of information from them. I think of this as a survey technique. We interview these reports. Um, and they have to speak back to, we ask them questions and we write down their answers and sometimes they don't answer and sometimes they tell us more than we want to know and we try and put this in a structured form. So here are the kinds of things that go in the database. Um, there are, uh, our coding protocol has about 150 separate variables that we try and extract from uh, um, the, the studies here. So we're very interested in the characteristics of the uh, sample. Many studies don't give you much information, but we get the basic sociodemographics, uh, gender, age, uh, ethnic mix, uh, risk level. The characteristics of the intervention, of course, what is the target intervention, um, uh, uh, um, the duration, the uh, frequency, the uh, quality of implementation, and uh, so on. Much attention to the characteristics of the research design. We don't want what the researcher does uh, procedurally and methodologically to uh, uh, be any more confounded than necessary with the outcomes. We've learned uh, uh, quite a bit about the role of methodology, which is an interesting story in its own right. Um, the characteristics of the control group, treatment effects are a contrast between the outcomes for an intervention group and a, a comparison group, and comparison groups differ, so we code what we can about uh, that. Um, characteristics of the measures that are used. It's taken a long time to sort out what to do with all these different kinds of reoffense measures. Are they uh, rearrested? Um, are they recontacted? Do they go back to juvenile court? Are they reinstitutionalized? Are they convicted? Is it over a six month period, over a 12 month period? Is it all offenses? Is it only criminal offenses? Is it only violent offenses? And so on down the line. Um, I think we have uh, mastered that as best one can, but that's another thing I'd be happy to talk about if you're interested in details. The hub around which it all revolves, of course, is the statistic called the effect size. This is a statistical representation of the difference between the reoffense rates of the uh, participants who received the intervention program of interest and the reoffense rates of the comparison group that didn't receive the uh, program. I'm going to uh, I'm going to talk about these effect sizes in positive terms. That is, their being large is good but that means that the reoffense rates are lower 
So being a small reoffense rate is a good thing, and we'll call that a positive outcome and a positive effect size um, by convention here. Okay. When you do this, you get distributions of effect sizes. Um, and here's an example of a distribution of effect sizes for cognitive behavioral uh, therapy programs. Uh, I cheated a little bit in this particular distribution because in this, uh, uh, in our look at, uh, at CBT programs, we actually included some uh, interventions with adults and not just with juveniles, but we can find no age differences at all. So I've mushed them all together because it's more interesting to talk about 58 studies than 25 studies. Um, but notice that there are 58 studies here of cognitive behavioral um, uh, therapy. That's the evidence base if we come in at this generic level of cognitive behavioral therapies uh, for offenders. You can see over here is the zero point. This particular effect size is a log-dodds ratio, um, but the good end is out there on the right, uh, and the bad end is over on the uh, left. Uh, um, I knew that was going to happen. Um, the, uh, the average recidivism reduction here, if you translate this um, away from these oddball odd ratios, is about a 25% reduction in recidivism. The juveniles who uh, get the cognitive behavioral therapy recidivate or reoffend at a rate about 25% less than those who don't. That's not trivial in the world of uh, practical applications by any means. The cost consequences of uh, reoffending are quite high for uh, society and for the uh, agencies that have to deal with them. Um, I want to show you the mix of brand name programs and homegrown programs in here, okay? So I've kind of color-coded um, uh, at, uh, at the level where these uh, uh, different effect sizes occur, whether or not they, I did them first or second, uh, and whether they're up higher or lower in a given stack is sort of uh, irrelevant. If I put them on top of each other, you just have muddled colors and you wouldn't see anything. These red ones are a name brand program called Reasoning and Rehabilitation. Uh, these blue ones are a name brand program called Moral Reconnation Therapy. Um, these, um, the, ah, those are green up there, good. Those green ones are aggression replacement training. And the yellow and gold ones, the gold ones are sort of named one-off programs. Uh, and, the, um, and the yellow ones, ah, we can see those too. The yellow ones are homegrown programs, no-name homegrown programs, okay? What I want you to see here is that there's a distribution and that both the homegrown programs and the no-name programs and the brand-name programs are all spread along that distribution. We don't have our brand-name model protocol programs all clustered at the top with their effective active ingredients outperforming everything else. Um, all of them, uh, uh, and, and indeed there's no concentration of any of these um, brand-name programs at the top end. Depending on the particular study, some show very positive results. Now, don't misunderstand me. They deserve their reputations. They're all showing average positive effects, and that's good to know. And there are advantages to those programs. They often come with technical assistance and training and manuals and all kinds of good things if you want to implement them. But in terms of effectiveness, we're seeing variability in all of these programs, and we're seeing no sharp distinction between those that make it onto evidence-based lists and those that don't, so long as they're cognitive behavioral therapy. Are you following me okay here? So the question is not so much, what's the magic bullet program? The question is, what do you have to have to be up on the right-hand side of that distribution where the big effects are? Let me show you another example. Here, there's this, the distribution of effect sizes for family therapy interventions. And again, we have a distribution. We've got a, a zero point. Most everything is on the positive side of uh, zero. That's good. A few things creep down into the negative side. That's not so bad, but there aren't too many uh, over there. The average uh, reduction here is 13%, less than the average for the cognitive behavioral uh, programs, but uh, nothing to sneeze at in the real world. The uh, cost uh, uh, consequences of that are uh, considerable. There are only two model brand name programs in here. Um, I'll show you where they are. There's multi-systemic therapy and there's functional family therapy uh, in the blue. 
Um, again, they deserve their reputation. They have positive average of, of effects. Uh, but notice here, um, these, these are the two that make it on the list, and there are eight studies. There are actually more studies if we updated this a, a, a bit, but not a whole lot. There are 29 studies of family therapy with juvenile offenders that show the, the no-name programs show a distribution here that's quite similar. In fact, some of these studies seem to show some of these no-names outperform, certainly do as well as the brand-name programs. Now, if we ask about the evidence base here, the evidence base for family therapy with juvenile offenders is 29 studies. The evidence base for functional family therapy, four studies in this mix, not many more if we take uh, newer ones that are available, similarly for multisystemic therapy. Okay, so there's some advantages to looking at the broader evidence base. One is we can test whether or not the brand name programs that get the attention and are being heavily marketed, in fact, are better than everything else. Uh, their advantages are probably their infrastructure, not necessarily their uh, efficacy. Um, but we also have uh, another situation where there's a great deal of variability. So in my mind, the question moves from what's the most effective program in the magic bullet program here to the question of where does this variability come from? And can we account for that variability? And can we identify the characteristics of the programs that show the largest effects? Um, and we don't have much reason to believe from these distributions, and I could show you many more that are quite similar with different, uh, in different program areas, we don't have any reason to believe from these distributions that what characterizes the programs with the large effects is that they're going to be the ones on the lists and the ones, the, the protocol name brand programs and not anything else. So, some types of interventions have evidence of effectiveness, types, the generic uh, category. There is a uh, catch here, though the average effects are, um, are positive in these generic categories. Um, this is an average, larger and smaller. Uh, my first statistics professor told me to be careful of averages. If your feet are in the block of ice and your head is in the oven, the fact that your average temperature is 98.6, that's Fahrenheit, sorry, um, is uh, not much uh, comfort to you. We have great dis we have a great variation around these uh, averages. So the averages aren't actually much comfort when the variation ranges literally from negative effects, counterproductive effects, to very much larger effects even though than those averages I showed you. So some variants of these interventions show large positive effects. Others show negligible, even negative effects. And of course, what we want to know is how can we characterize the most effective ones here and what is it that characterizes them. So most of the work I've been doing um, for some time now has been much less interested in the uh, average effect of any of these interventions and much more interested in uh, trying to explain the variability as uh, best we can. And the way we go about this, okay, now here's a simple slide that's going to mask a, a, a lot of technical complications. Uh, um, but uh, basically, we're going to do multivariate analysis here in which our outcome variables are these effect sizes for uh, recidivism. And we want to look at those. And remember, we've got 548 studies and a lot of data on these studies. We have a large database for multivariate analysis. We want to look at these as a function of uh, likely uh, characteristics that are reported well enough to be able to uh, analyze in this literature. So we pay a lot of attention to the uh, study methods, uh, and it turns out uh, that they are quite influential, and we have to do a little statistical control dance to, uh, uh, to try and level a playing field as best we can for uh, different variants in the uh, methodology. It's an interesting side story there that I won't go into, but the proportion of the variation in the outcomes that are found in these studies that is associated with methodological variation is um, awkwardly high. We would like to think that our studies are like a pure amplifier that carries the sound forward uh, uh, undistorted from what the actual uh, intervention effects are and without a lot of input from what the researcher does. But uh, the researcher is uh, influencing the outcomes uh, uh, quite uh, considerably here which is a, a, a methodological problem. But the substantive issues here, then, are sample characteristics. Do we see 
uh, uh, reliable differential effects according to age, gender, ethnic mix. Or some programs or all programs more effective, less effective uh, with one of those uh, categories. Uh, the level of juvenile justice uh, control here, the, uh, these studies span the spectrum from uh, prevention programs for minor offenders, early diversion, early intervention programs, up to custodial institutionalization of, uh, of uh, more uh, serious offenders. So there's a given program, a cognitive behavioral program, uh, like I showed you on the earlier slide. If it's done in a custodial institutional context, does it have different effects than if it's done in the community, say? Um, the type of program, of course, uh, and I'll say more about this in a minute, is it a cognitive behavioral program, a family therapy program, group counseling, individual counseling, mentoring, and uh, so on down the line. And then what we can code about the nature of the program implementation, the dose, how much was uh, our contact was actually provided, and what we can extract about the quality of the uh, implementation. Okay. When we do that in uh, short form, here's what we find. Um, and uh, a good bit of the details here have been published, and I'd be happy to share more detail with any of you. As I said a moment ago, the methodological category matters um, a surprisingly uh, large uh, amount. And we find effect size differences that are associated with the way the, the outcome is measured, um, the type of recidivism, the timing, and uh, uh, so on. We find uh, a, a variation associated with the design. Uh, incidentally, as a footnote for those of you that are interested in the issue of randomized and non-randomized studies, because we have both mixed in here, remember, though, that the non-randomized studies, the, the, uh, the, the, cr the criteria are moderately restrictive for them. They have to have baseline measures on critical variables and be matched or statistically controlled on those variables. So the door isn't wide open to all forms of uh, non-randomized uh, studies. But categorically, the difference there's no difference between randomized and non-randomized uh, studies. There's a big difference associated with the initial equivalence on these uh, critical variables. What that means is that uh, many of the randomized studies are not all that equivalent initially on the basis baseline variables, uh, partly because of attrition uh, and partly because of small samples where randomization doesn't provide necessarily a high probability that you'll end up with, uh, 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 with the equivalents. Also, as, a, as another footnote, the, um, something approaching 60% um, or more of the studies in this database are random assignment. Uh, so the, the, um, the majority, but by no means all of them, are in fact are random assignment studies. Sample size um, uh, turns out to matter. Publication source, uh, um, if you know the research synthesis literature, publication bias, published studies tend to show um, uh, larger effects. Um, we, have, um, we have spent years uh, digging these studies out, and many of them are in technical reports and in conference papers and so on. The majority of these studies, the major more than 50%, literally the majority are, are from unpublished sources. So we have a strong representation of unpublished studies here, which helps uh, us with the uh, publication bias. And despite that, you see some uh, differences. Um, what we do with these uh, for purposes of looking at the substantive uh, issues is to uh, use them as statistical control variables in various ways and try statistically to level the field so we can compare uh, substantive differences without uh, uh, too much, we hope, confounding with uh, methodology. The story about the... Um, role of methodology in, in uh, what we do as researchers, though, is an interesting one in its own right. So what about the characteristics of the uh, juveniles then? Uh, interestingly, um, the effect size differences are not associated with many of the defined or, or described characteristics that are available in these research studies. The only one that really matters a whole lot is the risk level. The higher the risk level, risk meaning by a risk assessment instrument uh, which largely reflects prior offense history and uh, antisocial attitudes and a range of things like that. The higher the risk level, the larger effects, the more effective the uh, programs are. And that actually makes sense if you think about it. Uh, the higher uh, risk uh, 
uh, juveniles uh, have more potential to improve. If you start out with low-risk juveniles, low-risk means little likelihood of reoffending. There's not a whole lot you can do to bring down a little likelihood to an even uh, lower likelihood. Also, interestingly, in this literature, we have not seen any ceiling on this effect. We have not found any indication that there are offenders of such high risk, that they're such hardened criminals that they're not amenable to uh, positive effects from uh, effective uh, interventions. If that if the prior delinquency history and risk includes violence or some aggressive history, this effect is stronger, still positive, but, but muted somewhat. The usual sociological suspects here don't seem to play much of a role. We don't see much dif uh, systematic differentiation in the effectiveness of these programs associated with age within the range uh, that we're looking at here, with the gender mix or with uh, ethnicity. Ethnicity we've looked at very closely, at least uh, most of these studies, unfortunately, uh, for generalizability, come from a U.S. Uh, context, though I should say that our our, our, our scope was essentially uh, uh, Western countries with sort of contemporary juvenile justice uh, systems. Um, uh, uh, so ethnicity is largely a matter of uh, comparison of uh, African Americans with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, whites. The gender mix, you see I have a question mark there. We don't find any, any systematic differences associated with effects uh, for boys and girls. But the literature is ho so heavily skewed toward male samples that, um, uh, and there's more recent work that's been, uh, that's been done uh, with girls that we've not included yet that suggests that certainly in some cases there clearly are some differences, though uh, uh, generally we don't find much. So that's a little questionable, but so far I, I should just, I should add another footnote on this. Um, this is not an argument that cultural sensitivity in these interventions is not um, uh, worthwhile. It's an argument that the mainstream interventions can be effective with these different uh, sociodemographic groups. Uh, uh, cultural sensitivity uh, improvements layered on top of that might well make the effects even stronger. Um, my reading of the literature is that what probably happens there is that tailored interventions, tailored to a particular sociodemographic group, are probably more effective at engaging the youth so that they stick with the services and they engage in the services. But the actual efficacy of the services, I think, are probably uh, much the same, but that's just a hypothesis. Juvenile justice level of supervision or penetration into the system, as it's often called, uh, surprisingly makes no difference, and encouragingly, I should say, makes no difference once you have controlled for risk. And that's an important uh, 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 conditional here because, of course, the juveniles that are in custodial facilities are higher risk than those that are being diverted from the system and treated in the community or under court supervision in the uh, community. But once you account for prior uh, uh, offense histories and, uh, uh, and risk factors, we see that these programs uh, generally are equally effective in institutional settings in the community. Um, uh, and at these various levels of uh, supervision. Um, where we've gone with that, incidentally, in our work with actional juvenile justice systems is to emphasize the role of supervision for short-term behavioral control. That is, you have juvenile offenders who come in the system that just have to be off the streets or have to be watched for a while, but there's no expectation of therapeutic value there, and we have other information that shows that the supervision itself has little effects on... Uh, on uh, recidivism. So one separates the level of supervision from the actual therapeutic programs that are going to uh, have produced the uh, longer term change. But in many instances, you have to have some level of uh, supervision. The type of program now, I have to talk about this a little bit more because this matters quite a bit. You saw illustrations in the different average recidivism rates for the cognitive behavioral therapies and the family therapies, uh, for example. Um, we have struggled a good bit with how to categorize the uh, various programs that appear uh, in the uh, research literature. And um, currently, uh, there, there are many variations, but uh, currently we're, we're differentiating hierarchically at two levels. 
Uh, first, we differentiate between what we call programs that take control approaches or use control philosophies and those that use therapeutic philosophies. And I'll show you in more detail in a uh, moment. And then within each of these uh, categories, we differentiate the generic type of intervention. Here's where your cognitive behavioral therapy and your mentoring and your uh, family therapy and uh, uh, so on uh, show up. Let me show you... Um, uh, then just um, uh, how this works with some examples. These charts, basically, I've moved off of statistical effect sizes, and I'm just talking about percent reduction uh, in recidivism, reoffense rates, from a 50% baseline. So we imagine that the control group, the comparison group, 50% reoffend over one year. We're, we're, we're standardizing on 12-month rearrest rates here. Uh, and then we want to see how much less than that the, uh, the, the group with the uh, intervention program recidivates. And 50% is picked partly for statistical convenience, but it's actually quite close empirically to the average across uh, all our control groups once you've standardized on 12-month uh, uh, rearrest rates. Um, so everything that runs out here to the right is showing a reduction in comparison to uh, the control groups. If it strays over into the left, it's actually doing worse than the uh, control groups. Here are the categories that we call our control approaches. All right, so approaches that are based on discipline. What these kids need is some structure in their life. The prototypical example is boot camps, paramilitary boot camps. I don't know if you have those over here. For a while, we had them everywhere. Fortunately, and for partly this reason, they're, uh, they're in decline. Deterrence is um, our programs that are based on essentially fear of consequences. Um, a prototypical program here is prison visitation, the notorious scared straight program. Some of you might have heard about kids come into, offenders come into the prison, the prisoners tell them they better straight their, straighten their lives out. Uh, they'll be ruined just like the people in prison. And furthermore, if you get here in prison, here's what we're going to do to you. You don't really want to be here. Okay, the idea that fear of consequences will deter behavior. Uh, my wife and I raised two kids, and I didn't notice any awareness of consequences whatsoever during their adolescent period, but nonetheless, that is the uh, philosophy here. Surveillance is close monitoring, close watching. The prototypical case here is intensive probation supervision, uh, watch, uh, having the kids have a, a probation officer who's assigned to meet and, uh, uh, and monitor the, uh, the juvenile very frequently. You see that one uh, actually shows average uh, positive effects as a uh, category, but is, um, uh, is less positive than those in the other category. I think what's going on here is that in this intensive uh, supervision that you have a significant counseling component. So this is probably more a hybrid type than a pure type. The therapeutic approaches then um, we categorize first as restorative. This is restorative justice. These are your community service, victim offender mediation type programs. Skill building, a very big category of skill building program, different skills, um, interpersonal skills, uh, academic skills, uh, vocational skills. Um, the, uh, the ubiquitous uh, counseling category, uh, uh, for these last two, I'll show you a little more detail in a uh, moment. Your group counseling, individual counseling, family counseling, mixed counseling, so on down the line. And then uh, sort of a leftover multiple service category. These are your case management or your service broker referral where you can't really characterize what the juveniles get with a single program because they're being matched up or distributed to different kinds of programs and uh, interventions. Now, if you drill down into any of these categories, now, from here on out, we're just interested in the therapeutic approaches for what I think are uh, obvious reasons. The therapeutic approaches, the common element we see here is that they're oriented in some way or another toward bringing about internalized change in the juvenile's behavior that's more self-motivated and more likely to last than something that uh, is, uh, uh, largely comes from uh, external control. Just to show you a little more detail here, um, here's a further breakdown on what we get in the skill building uh, category. Behavioral programs are um, uh, contract management, uh, token economies, um, uh, things on that order. The cognitive behavioral um, programs I already showed you. Uh, social skills challenge programs are your, are your outward bound wilderness ropes kind of programs. Uh, 
um, academic and, uh, and job related. And you can see they're all on the, the average effects are all on the positive side. Every, all of these categories have average positive effects. Um, some on average larger than others, at least given what's been tested in the, uh, uh, in the research uh, literature so far. And of course, big variation around those averages. I could make a distribution like I showed you for cognitive behavioral therapy and family therapy for every one of these and you would see a broad uh, spread with a positive average in the middle, some much better than average, some at zero and even sliding over into uh, negative uh, territory. The uh, counseling category, skill building and counseling are the two really big ones here. Um, uh, individual counseling, uh, mentoring, we think of this as the relational category that the underlying philosophy here is a relationship with a trained uh, professional in some form or another. So mentoring programs, family therapy, family crisis therapy, group therapy, peer counseling, that's where the kids themselves basically run the counseling sessions, guided group interaction and so on. Uh, mixed uh, variations of individual group, uh, family, and so on. And those uh, small category in which there's also outside referrals with the counseling for additional services. Again, you see all positive averages for these generic intervention types and, of course, variability around those averages. Everybody okay so far? All right. So, so that was program type obviously matters a lot in terms of, uh, of the uh, outcomes. Um, if you want to have positive effects, better stay in that therapeutic category, and then there's considerable variation in what we know about the average effects for different uh, approaches within that uh, category. So how the program is uh, implemented turns out to uh, matter a good bit service amount and quality of implementation. So our effect sizes are associated with the duration of service and the total hours of service, contact hours, which is how we've operationalized that uh, from the literature. Uh, no big surprise here, um, uh, up to uh, at least some point of diminishing returns. You have to provide enough service to make a difference. You'd be astonished if you dug into this or if you have already dug into it uh, carefully what the range of contact time is in these, uh, in these programs that have been studied. We have dug into footnotes and done a few little marginal calculations and determined that the average juvenile in some programs received 15 minutes of face-to-face uh, -face contact per week. Not surprisingly, that doesn't produce uh, big results. Quality of implementation. Um, is a big factor here. This is hard to extract from this uh, literature because they're not standardized measures and it's not often reported. So what we're mostly looking at here is not clinical quality, though I'm quite confident that matters, uh, but something about the organizational context. If there's a, a protocol or a clear definition of what the program actually is and what's supposed to be done, if there's any evidence of uh, monitoring, training of personnel, uh, uh, corrective action when there's drift from what is intended to be done. Um, so, th so keep that in mind. More organizational quality is, is what we're able to index. Um, we're not so sure about our clinical quality because it's just not well reported. Um, uh, these implementation variables, I'm going to come back to this a little later, these implementation variables um, are very strong predictors, okay? The, um, uh, the, the biggies here are type of program and how well it's implemented. Uh, and, and as long as you're in that therapeutic category, remember, type of all the types of programs produce average effects. So dosage and quality of implementation is a big factor in what put, keeps you at the high end of the a program at the high end of the distribution, um, uh, and um, is more or less equal in its in, influence or at least relationship with the uh, outcomes with the type of program. And there's some interesting implications of that. One of which is that when I'm talking to practitioners. Um, as long as they're doing something that falls in the therapeutic category, my message is the low-hanging fruit is to implement better and implement well, uh, not to change what you're doing and uh, try and retrain yourself in CBT or something that you're not uh, currently familiar with. Okay, so that's the big picture. There's lots of fine grain within that. 
Let me turn to the question of uh, practice. Let's just take this big picture and turn it into some really simple-minded practice guidelines for how you do a therapeutic program that gets you up on the, uh, uh, at least the, to average or above in these uh, distributions. Well, use a, one of these therapeutic approaches and within the therapeutic category that fits your circumstance, pick one of the better interventions, uh, uh, at least better in terms of uh, average effect sizes. Uh, for a given intervention type, then, in that uh, category, target higher-risk juveniles. Provide an amount of service that at least matches the average that's in the supportive research. The logic there being if you provide the average amount of service, you've got a chance of getting the average result, and the average result isn't bad. Okay? And implement well. High-quality implementation, have a treatment protocol, so you're clear on what it is you're trying to do within any of these intervention categories, and monitor what you're doing for adherence, okay? I often look at these and say, boy, that's pretty obvious. I mean, that's really, you know, pick a good program, give enough of it to the right kind of people who can respond to it, and do it well, all right? So you, probably, you could have known this before you came in. But hey, I've got 600 studies. What have you got? Okay. <laughs> now let's talk about taking these, um, uh, albeit somewhat uh, crude, practice guidelines that we get from the uh, big picture analysis here, and trying to uh, and translate it into pr into uh, practice. And this is actually where my uh, interest is these days. I'm getting late in my career, and I've spent a long time publishing papers about all this meta-analysis stuff and juvenile delinquency. And incidentally, much of what I've reported here we have found in other social uh, intervention areas in other uh, meta-analyses in terms of the uh, general picture. I'm much more interested in how we make better use of this research in actual um, uh, practice. So we took a stab at operationalizing these simple practice guidelines in a tool that we thought might actually be usable uh, in uh, practice. And we created something that my colleague promptly named the Standardized Program Evaluation Tool, the SPEP. Okay? Um, I'm not real wild about that, but, it, but that's what it is. I thought we at least ought to call it the PEP. Uh, it seemed a little sexier. This is basically a, a simple rating system for each program type within the therapeutic philosophies that tries to rate how close it matches this simple research profile that says you should get pretty good results if you have high-risk offenders, good programs, well-implemented, yada, yada, yada. Um, so, and it's applied to individual practice programs that are out there being used, um, using data about the services that are actually provided, um, information about the nature of the program that allows you to categorize it as cognitive behavioral or family or mentoring or whatever, information about the actual average amount of service provided to the clients, or more particularly how many of them uh, receive service that at least uh, gets to the uh, average, um, uh, 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 ratings of quality of implementation and so on. So we're talking about the data-driven scheme, not a set of uh, judgment ratings here. We've done pilot projects with the juvenile justice systems in the U.S. states of Arizona, North Carolina, and finally, at long last, my home state of uh, Tennessee. Um, and we're currently um, in the early going of a project called the Juvenile Justice System Improvement Project that we have launched in collaboration with the um, Center for um, Juvenile Justice Reform at uh, Georgetown University, where we're working at a fairly large scale with four state systems that want to bring in a mix of these practice guidelines with some other improvements in their tool, their decision-making tools, risk assessment, needs assessment, and, uh, uh, and, and so on. Very interesting project. Um, but to get back to the uh, SPEP here, here's sort of, uh, here's sort of what it looks like um, uh, in, a, in a template form. Uh, we've assigned points that add up to 100. And uh, how did we decide what sh how many points to uh, provide each thing? Well, they're basically proportionate to, uh, they're almost rounded off multiple regression coefficients, uh, uh, scaled to uh, add to 100. They're proportionate to the uh, statistical influence we see of each of these factors on the outcomes. For dosage, 
uh, we have to set some target value. So we take the average, we actually take the median because we have some uh, skewed distributions. We take the median uh, contact hours, median duration of service, and essentially scale points that say you get more points if you get more kids up to that uh, median level. And you can see here, um, here's the service category, and there are various points assigned according just to the average level of the different servicing. Cognitive behavioral therapy gets a little more than the family therapy because on average it showed uh, larger effects. Um, here's the amount of, there's a little supplemental service uh, category in the there, in a few cases, we found evidence for some combinations that seem to be particularly facilitative. Uh, so you, you can toss in an extra five points if you've got one of those uh, good supplements. Um, treatment amount, operationalized is duration and uh, contact hours, directly from a management information system uh, in uh, practice. Uh, treatment uh, quality rating, um, this is the one that's proven most problematic in practice, and the places we've worked with so far have actually had to kind of step back and come up with some way of, remember this is more focused on organizational quality and monitoring than the clinical quality, come up with some way of actually getting uh, information. That's been an eye-opener for some of them, incidentally. Turned out they really didn't know whether or not the services they were paying for had a specification of what they were trying to do, and if they did any monitoring at all about uh, how well they were doing it. Um, and the uh, risk level of the uh, juveniles, which typically comes from a standardized, uh, validated uh, risk assessment form with some categories. Okay, So we're putting all that together, dumping it into our little scoring algorithm, and coming up with a uh, score for each, uh, uh, essentially a data-driven, evidence-driven score. Um, and the idea is that, um, that that should give some indication of how close that particular program matches what the research says should produce positive effects. Now, what we've been most interested in in the pilot work is doing, getting some validation for this. After all, ask yourself, what is the evidence? The evidence-based practice is any better than anything else, okay? Just because a program, this body of research, large as it is, it's not done in any of the places where, uh, where these programs are being practiced. It's some mix of, uh, a lot of it's done by researchers them, uh, themselves in particular settings, maybe in hothouse uh, circumstances in some regard that aren't representative of, uh, of actual practice. So we see it as a hypothesis that matching what research says should be effective will actually be effective. Now, this is a hard thing to um, prove. If I, um, if I were king of the world, I would be randomly assigning programs to be good and to be poor in very systematic ways, and I'd compare the uh, outcomes. Uh, we have to work more with natural variability here. Um, so let me show you one of these um, uh, uh, validity studies that I think is particularly illustrative because it was focusing on kids in probation that are higher risk than, uh, than another one that we did on uh, prevention cases. This is in uh, um, Arizona and shared with their uh, permission. Um, programs provided during 2005 and 6 in five pilot counties. We've got about 1,500 uh, juveniles who went through with recidivism outcomes who went through 66 programs that we were able to rate on this uh, scheme. We've got six-month uh, recidivism data, reoffense, arrest reoffense data on all of them, 12-month uh, on uh, most of them. Um, first thing that was interesting, certainly very much to the Arizona juvenile justice system, is what's their distribution of scores on this uh, instrument. At the time we collected this data, notice the top end is only 85 points. They were still struggling with how to rate the 15, the, uh, the service providers on the 15 quality um, uh, of implementation uh, points. They've subsequently solved that uh, um, a problem. So what we want to do is compare actual with predicted. And our idea was that if the program is uh, actually more effective, it should outperform the predicted recidivism rate for the kind of the risk level of the juveniles it's working with. You following me? Okay. So we'll divide these programs into the three quarters that scored below 50 and the one quarter that scored above 50, putting aside for the moment the fact that even those didn't score all that much higher above uh, 50. Uh, and here's what happens when we uh, do that. Um, here, 
we've got the difference between actual and predicted recidivism for six month and 12 month for the programs that scored uh, below 50 on this scheme. And you can see that that's one percentage point difference. So the recidivism rate for these programs came in right about where you would expect given the prediction model for, um, uh, for, for the risk level of the juveniles. Okay, if I can have the envelope, please, I'll show you what happened with the high-scoring programs. For the six-month recidivism, there's a 12 percentage point differential. That is, for the programs that more closely match the research profiles here, the actual recidivism rates were 12 percentage points lower than what was predicted given the risk level of their uh, uh, juveniles. Uh, and very similar thing for the 12-month uh, rates where we had it here as a 13 percentage point. I don't view this as definitive, but I think we're on the right track here. I think that um, modeling on what the research literature says, even with these generic kinds of, uh, of guidelines about dosage and quality of implementation and therapeutic programs and so on, that we are giving these actual practitioners some good advice that will help them improve their uh, programs. And they seem to believe that uh, as well because there's been a lot of interest in implementing this in the states we're working with. Okay. Um, let me just wrap up with my last little category here of frontiers. I won't take too long on this, but um, uh, these are some things, there's some implications, some things we need to do, some things I've been thinking about in various ways, and I'll try not to get myself sidetracked, but ask about any of them you're interested in. I want to talk first about further research development that is needed to adequately support practice. You can't work with 548 studies in the detail we have and not get a whole lot of frustration and ideas about how the research should be a lot better if we actually want to serve practice. And it's not just in this area. We've worked in other areas, too. I was, I was tallying up recently our entire set of databases. How many intervention studies have we actually coded in all the work we've done? And we've got about 2,500 studies across all the uh, different uh, projects we've done. So we've looked at an awful lot of research and, uh, and, and what it... Um, uh, tells us. Um, but anyway, uh, certainly the biggie here is that, um, that, that we, we, we need much more research. We need generations of research that move beyond black box evaluations. Many of these intervention areas, this is certainly true of juvenile justice and uh, interventions, uh, uh, criminal justice interventions generally. The research has been dominated by the question of, does anything work? Can we show something works? And in fact, in criminology in the mid-70s, uh, late 80s, there were uh, conventional literature reviews using what we know now is a very flawed way of assessing uh, results that basically made claims that nothing worked in the rehabilitation of offenders. I literally, that's the phrase, nothing works. In, um, uh, so not surprisingly, we have a lot of research that just basically input-output, trying to show that, whether or not you can get positive effects out of cognitive behavioral or, or intervention or uh, so on. Uh, but we don't get very complete characteristic characterizations of the, uh, of the um, independent variables, what the interventions are. When you, when you start looking at it this way, it's really quite remarkable. We have pages and pages about the dependent variables and what they are and how we statistically analyze them and what their significance is. And sometimes you're lucky if you get four sentences on what it was that produced those outcomes. Um, uh, so uh, if we're going to better understand the differential effectiveness of programs, we've got to have much more uh, documentation and much more systematic documentation, which means the researchers have to appraise it systematically and report what's actually going on. Um, um, in, in there, we need to know more about essentially the kind of components that go into these interventions. Few of these interventions have just a kind of a single monolithic unified thing they do. Our attempt to tally up just anything that's mentioned um, uh, in these uh, descriptions shows an average of about 5.6 different aspects or facets of the intervention that uh, 
that are identified, and I'm sure those are being underreported, and we're certainly not getting much description. So a lot of these, inter most of these interventions are kind of mix and matches of different things, a little counseling, a little this, uh, a little that, and we need to know much more about that. Some of you may be uh, familiar with some of the work of uh, Charpita or, uh, or, or Dennis Embry, who have uh, who've been writing lately about uh, uh, elements, uh, differentiating the elements or the, uh, or the components, and, uh, and trying to do some differentiated analysis that would help sort out what seem to be the more active or effective uh, components when they're uh, present, but it's, it's very crude from existing research. Um, this quality of implementation issue, okay, better ways of characterizing quality of implementation. We're only able to extract very crude information about quality of implementation, and yet it's one of the strongest predictors of outcome. I have no doubt that if we do more, knew more about that, we would, uh, uh, we would uh, learn much more about what programs need to be doing to have positive outcomes. Differential effects for recipients with different characteristics. I showed you that there wasn't much going on with the usual sociodemographic suspects. Uh, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are many characteristics of juveniles that have to do with their level of family support, their uh, attitudes, their uh, openness to, um, uh, to, to the therapies, their stages of change in terms of uh, whether or not they're basically in denial and don't think they have a problem and are being maligned by the system or recognized. Many things we could think about uh, easily that are probably related to differential outcomes, almost none of which are, are documented in the, uh, in the uh, literature. Mediator relationships between proximal and distal outcomes. Um, virtually all of these programs target a proximal outcome. Family relationships, thinking, cognitive behavioral, antisocial uh, thinking, uh, relationships with uh, peers. These are recognized criminogenic um, uh, risk factors because they are predictive of later reoffense rates. And the standard expectation is you target these criminogenic risk factors and that is what brings about change in recidivism. That's a mediational model. There is almost no empirical evidence that actually shows those criminogenic risk factors and changes in those risk factors are actually mediating the recidivism outcomes. Uh, uh, you're basically putting two literatures together, risk prediction on the one hand and intervention on the other and speculating that that's the mechanism but uh, with surprisingly little empirical evidence and we really need to know much more about that. Deeper understanding of the factors that actually influence implementation. These programs struggle to implement well. There are funding issues, there's personnel turnover, there's administrative issues. There's a, a lot more work done in just the last 10 years about uh, implement, uh, implementation. We need to start cataloging those variables and bringing it into this literature. Um, also, implementability. Okay, I'm not sure that's a real word, but uh, I've been using it a lot. Um, the, the standard model we have, remember how, how, what a big factor implementation was aside from the nature of the intervention. Kind of the standard research model we have is that on the research side, we try and develop programs that have efficacy and effectiveness and then struggle to get them implemented. And often they don't implement very well, and sometimes they don't implement at all. They're not, consist they're not compatible with the service provider culture, and no matter what they show in the research, they don't go anywhere at all. We need a parallel literature that starts with implementability, what is actually acceptable and can be implemented, and works backwards to efficacy so that we have more that is actually uh, usable in practice. And when you look at it that way, we know a lot about efficacy, most of my studies have focused on efficacy, almost nothing about what characterizes the things that are easiest to implement. And the combination, of course, is, is the sweet spot. Um, things that can be implemented are very compatible with the culture, can be sustained and maintained at a, uh, at a high level and are also efficacious. That's what's going to work in practice, not necessarily what looks good in our research studies. Integration of program cost and cost effectiveness with the impact evaluations. I've been an evalu program evaluator my entire career, and I'm now embarrassed at how seldom I or any of my colleagues have managed, have bothered to report how much the programs cost when we evaluate them. When I talk to legislators and uh, policymakers, however, that's the first thing they want to know. And, uh, uh, and we really need, so, so part of the picture here is not just what's implementable and efficacious, but what's cost effective. 
uh, and we know too little about that. Data on cross-subgroup, cross-setting, cross-cultural robustness and generalizability. How broadly can you generalize these things? Even my approach has a limited number of studies. A high proportion of them are, um, are U.S. studies. Um, how robust are these findings in other cultures with, uh, uh, with other subgroups? How far can we uh, generalize this uh, uh, evidence? There are, um, there are a number of uh, UK studies. There's some Canadian studies, a few Scandinavian and German studies, um, uh, but precious few per, uh, proportionately. So it's really hard to assess. Even the simple, even in Western cultures, the generalizability of these uh, findings. Um, and we could, uh, uh, we need to work on our meta-analysis techniques so we can do more differentiated kind of synthesis. Uh, meta-analysis is getting there. Um, right now it's really good on coming up with average effects and uh, average effect sizes and heterogeneity of those and so on. Not so good on uh, examining variability, particularly with um, uh, statistically dependent effect sizes and multiple outcomes uh, uh, from studies and a whole lot of complications uh, uh, like that. That. Okay, let me just wrap up then with a few thoughts about um, uh, developments needed on the evidence-based uh, practice side, as I see it in our work with the juvenile justice agencies anyway. Um, uh, we need much more, I showed you a simple-minded set of practice guidelines that have some potential, but we need much more differentiated practice guidelines to help these folks. But we're going to have to help them move beyond the brand name programs that are on these lists. In the first place, there aren't that many of them. Many of them are expensive. Service providers don't want to implement a lot of them. And the repertoire is not broad enough to meet all their needs anyway. They're going to do generic programs. They're going to do homegrown programs for political reasons and for uh, practical reasons and we need to know a lot more about how to tell them how how to tell them how to do that well Assessment tools for matching interventions with service recipients. This is really a big weak spot that I see in practice in this uh, area. We have tools for assessing the risk of uh, juveniles. Um, we have tools like the one I just described that tell you something about what the effective programs are. But um, uh, this kind of goes back to my mediational variable um, uh, issue. What are the mechanisms of change? And they're different for different juveniles. What are the factors you need to target? How do we optimally match juveniles with programs. Just because they're having um, uh, substance abuse problems doesn't necessarily mean that's the root cause of their problems with law enforcement. That may be a symptom and maybe they're not getting along with their parents and that's causing both the uh, acting out antisocial behavior and the, and the substance abuse. We, we have surprisingly little systematic tools we can provide in that domain. Uh, workable schemes for uh, implementing interventions and monitoring and sustaining um, uh, uh, interventions. It's surprising how many uh, agencies out there struggle to tell you how many clients they've served, never mind exactly what was provided and what the uh, quality level uh, was. So we're not going to get anywhere that way. And frameworks for selecting programs for prevailing needs, settings, and resources. One of the big factors we've run into in our work is that, yes, you can identify a repertoire of effective programs, but if you're in a rural area, where there aren't that many um, uh, juveniles and there's only one provider in the entire county, what do you say uh, is going to be the best way to use those limited resources in that uh, uh, context when you're not going to have a repertoire of programs that you can uh, match with uh, juveniles? And that's all I have to say for the moment. Thank you. Thank you.